This is a Soulfire production. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Get Psyched. I'm your host, Lindsay Locke, and today's kind of a cool, special episode. I hung out with my buddy Kyle Tierman over at Mudwater and the Kyle Tierman Show, and we dropped an episode for Trends with Benefits starring yours truly. And it was such a fun conversation. Kyle is such a good interviewer and has so many different things to talk about that I felt like sharing it with our community too. And in hopes that once you guys listen to it, you guys go over, subscribe, and check out the Trends with Benefits podcast. It was so fun to be a guest on. They're also getting radical, radical guests on that show every week. And Kyle is doing such an incredible job interviewing them all. I feel so, so honored to have even been asked to be a part of the lineup. So be sure to head over, check out Trends with Benefits. I have linked it in the show notes. Also, while you're in the show notes, click on the Element link, L-M-N-T. Element is my go-to electrolyte drink. It is salty, it is delightful, it is delicious, and it is my go-to whether I am getting done with a CrossFit workout, hopping in the sauna, or just finished some high-intensity intervals. I depend on it. I drink it every day, and I think you will love it too. They are doing a free sample pack. All you've got to do is pay the shipping, so get your hands on that. Click the link in the show notes and enjoy your sweet, salty, delicious element. All right, guys, until next week, enjoy the show. Bam, 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 and we are on after five deep breaths. We should start every podcast like that. You should. I was just talking to a mindfulness expert. They said that with five deep breaths, you actually oxygenate every cell in your body. Whoa. How cool is that? And you're not oxygenating most, like if you're just breathing regularly, you're Um, not oxygenating your cells? From my understanding of it, how often are you actually sitting and taking that like deep, deep breath into your belly? Um, A lot of us are in our chest often. Um, I think that nasal breathing inherently brings you a little bit deeper into your belly. But yeah, taking that second, that deep, deep, deep breath in and out five times every cell. Uh, I was reading in that book, uh, Breath, Mm -hmm. by James Nestor, that there was an old running coach who would force his runners to take a big sip of water run the track, and then spit the water out to train them in nose breathing. I challenged myself the other day to do, I have a Peloton, and my body was just kind of beat up and was like, please, Lindsay, just give us a break. So I told myself, like, the goal. Give us a break. (laughs) The goal. It's not just one body. Oh, no, it's it's all all of my parts. Yes. Give us a break. Give us a break. Um, And then I have that other part that's like, you must conquer. (laughs) And yeah. so I like invite them all to dinner and we sit down and have a conversation. I'm like, okay, we're getting on the bike. <laughs> so I told myself like, I'm not gonna, I'm not PRing. I'm not racing people up the leaderboard. I'm just going to move my body. And I know, I know in my gut that if I go on there, like ego comes up right away and it's like, no, you're going to win. <laughs> and so I had to check myself, right? Put those checks and balances in place. I'm like, I'm going to take this whole Peloton class, just nasal breathing. Oh, my gosh, so hard. But at the end, I looked at like my PR score and what I did with just nasal breathing. And I was like two points off. 
Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. It was really, really cool because I think that when I'm breathing through my mouth, right, like not only am I triggering fight or flight, which we can totally go into that later, but I'm also like shooting my cortisol levels through the roof. I'm freaking my body out and then asking it to recover really quickly. I think that when we see a bunch of athletes, those that can do really high intervals and recover, that's all breath work. And so I don't think I ever got to a point within that class where I redlined and then had to like really, really slow down. I could stay pretty consistent and then push when they asked me to. So it was really interesting. I thought I'd get on there and just, I mean, I did die. Don't get me wrong. It was hard, but I thought that I would be like, oh, this is going to look like a recovery ride and instead was so close to what I perform. Yeah. My big brother's a firefighter and he talks about uh, certain captains that he's seen through his career who are able to stay really calm in intense situations. And he said that when he was really young, he remember goes, going to one of his first structure fires and his captain got out of the engine, put his arm around my brother and was like, all right, I want you to take the hose around to the side and you're going to turn on the hose. We're going to back you up. It's going to be totally fine. And he said he noticed how calm the captain's breath was Mm. and i think that that's important to underscore because it's so often our mood that follows our breathing pattern and you can trick yourself into staying calm in high intensity situations through slowing down and breathing through your nose Mm -hmm. i uh had a similar experience. They did this huge CrossFit thing back in the day, and it was down at the ranch in Aromas, which if anyone who's listening to this CrossFit, that's kind of like the iconic, where the CrossFit game started, this huge ranch. And you've been to Aromas. It gets hot in the summer there, right? And so they basically set up this like CrossFit obstacle course and put some of the fittest people to the test, get through this obstacle course, and at the end, handed them a gun and were like, hey, shoot these targets. (laughs) And you would watch like... They were super, they're like specimens, right? These thoroughbreds just getting through the obstacle course and they get to the end and couldn't shoot the target. Could not. And there's this guy who's a seal. He gets through it all, gets to the end and you saw him take like two deep nasal breaths and then boom, boom, boom. Every target exactly where it needed to go. So yeah. I started looking at that and I was like, hmm, what, what's this about? And that's when I started really geeking out on breath. And then to get into like the the kind of nerdy therapy side of it, we have, when we talk about like the reptilian brain, right? Ancient, ancient part of the brain and the brainstem. When you are breathing through your mouth, there is a nerve ending at the back of your throat. And so when I am breathing through my nose, I'm not uh, stimulating it. But when I'm breathing through my mouth, it it, it's almost like if you were the classic example of I'm walking down the path, right, and I get confronted by the bear, and the first thing I want to do is go, <gasps> right, boom, that triggered that, that nerve ending in the back of my throat. That shoots me into fight or flight. My eyes dilate so I can see the horizon. My ears change so that I'm listening for like low groans and like growls and grumbles. And cortisol shoots all of my muscles tense and I'm ready to run. So that's great if you have a really, really short amount of time that you need to run and get to safety, right? But then say you climb up a tree, you're safe, the bear goes away, my breathing relaxes, I return back to this like normal state and I can climb back down and go to my my house or go to my car, whatever. Now, if I climbed to the top of the tree and the bear started circling the tree and my breath stays in that spot, 
that's trauma. That's like setting you up for PTSD. My nervous system never got to reconfigure. So I took that information. I'm like, okay, if exercise is good for us, where does it get to be like too, too much of a good thing, right? Am I stressing my body out too much through all of this mouth breathing that I'm never actually letting my nervous system digest what I just put it through? And I'm staying in this heightened state of arousal. And so mixing those two worlds, seeing the seal that like took his deep breaths through his nose, knowing what I know about the nervous system, I started doing the work of, okay, in my transitions, if I'm going from the run to a kettlebell, from the kettlebell to the pull-up bar, can I take three nasal breaths in between those transitions? Can I do these different things where I'm like telling the nervous system I'm, I'm safe, allowing it to regulate cortisol in a different way? And doing all of that through the breath, like it was so, it was night and day. And then again, you know, to go back to the Peloton example, it was like I was able to I'm talking with my hands too much, knocking things over. I was able to sustain what I thought was like my peak performance at about 50 percent effort just from changing my breath. So it was really, really neat. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Andrew Huberman, who we were talking about before we went on the air, said something that really struck me, which was. He thinks that um, we should put people in positions of leadership who are best at regulating their autonomic nervous systems. Mm. That should be a marker for who we decide to put in those positions of power, which is really smart because you look to leaders to be the coolest cucumbers in the room when everyone else is freaking out. And... As you know from your work in therapy, we often mirror other mm-hmm. people. And the power of you know being that firefighter captain who can stay calm in the face of a structure fire mellows everyone on the crew out. Absolutely. That is one of the first things we learned in, in my master's program was one of the most powerful things you can do in the therapy room is be regulated yourself. So what was your master's program? I did my master's in counseling psychology with a holistic emphasis. So a lot of programs are two years and you do a lot of the clinical, right? Learn how to cross your T's, dot your I's. And we did that. Obviously, you need to know how to write notes and do all the things and diagnose. But then we also did another year of just holistic, you know, shamanism and breath work and these different things that if I'm sitting down with a client that is nothing like me, right? I'm a heterosexual, cisgendered, white female. A bunch of people, and especially those that have experienced a lot of trauma, are not me. I'm not, I'm not sitting across the table from someone that looks exactly like me or has had anywhere near the privileged upbringing that I had. So if I could bring in all of these different things and be able to sit with that person, connect with them in something over some way, and let them be the expert of their story and teach me something and stay grounded in who I was when all of that was happening, that felt more important to me than like the clipboard and the white lab coat, right? Like I want to be able to sit with someone's experience. And that was what so much of this holistic view was, was we're going to have you not only experience these different modalities of therapy, you're going to actively spend the entire quarter semester that you're doing it, like you are in that therapy. It's experiential. You are learning what it's like to sit in the chair that you're going to in turn ask your clients to sit in. 
So you know what it's like. I mean, you were we were talking about this before the show, too. When I was in, you know, addiction therapy classes, they're like, we want you to give something up. And I gave up caffeine. <laughs> and it was funny because she she uh, prefaced the class with, I want you guys to give something up. She's like, give up drinking, give up smoking. And I was like, oh, I don't really do those things. <laughs> you know, like, I think I can count on my fingers how many times I've smoked and like I drink maybe at weddings. You don't have nearly enough vices. <laughs> yeah. And she goes, what about caffeine? And I just felt my stomach like drop out my butthole. And I was like, mm. Okay, yep, you hit something there. And she was like, because if you were to sit down with someone, whether that's caffeine, heroin, sex, whatever it is, and you're going to ask that person to never do it again, you better know what it feels like to never do something again that you're so into. And so that was so much of our learning was like getting your hands dirty, doing it, learning it, and knowing what it's like to be asked to do that because it can be really scary. Hmm. Well, where was this program? This is at JFK. So it's um, they have a handful of different campuses, but mine was in San Jose. Hmm. I wonder how many of those programs uh, teach regulating your own nervous system and, and how important those little subtleties are, because so often it's what is taught in any form of education is what is coming out of your mouth. It's it's transfer transfer of information but so often it, the bigger thing that's coming across is body posture um everything that's not coming out of your mouth that is really setting the tone and the vibe and the um ability for whether it, it be the patient to heal or for the client to be persuaded mm -hmm. right? and it's uh I, th I think it's good to step back and look at how those subtleties are actually most of it. How are you making people feel? Mm -hmm. um, I And asking that question, how do I want to make this person feel, could answer a lot and uh, provide a lot more, a lot more success. I think that often we're so self-absorbed and inward, um, we're obsessed with how we're feeling and everyone else is obsessed with that, with how they're feeling mm -hmm. right like you've ever been in a group you think that everyone's looking at you and everyone's judging you that's why i hate getting too stoned just because i'm like <laughs> fuck everyone is looking at me right now god damn it right but really everyone's just looking at themselves mm -hmm. and they're too fucking spun out on their own little experiences but if you could just flip that and start to look outside and be like hmm, how do i want to make this person feel you can uh solve a lot of problems that way yeah, it, it's funny that you say that because being in fitness for as long as I was, there that was a barrier to entry. I don't want to be working out in front of people. They're looking at me. And I'm like, have you ever done 10 burpees? People are like, yeah. I'm like, what are you thinking about? Right. <laughs> Not dying? I'm like, yeah, everyone else in the room is too. They have no idea what you're doing. They have no idea. And exactly what you were saying, we're all so worried about what everyone else is thinking about us that no one's actually thinking about the other person, right? So, and it's, I, this was kind of like my own mantra to myself when I would find myself spinning out in those thoughts. And now I use it with my clients because I think comedic relief is, is awesome in the therapy room. So when they start spinning out, right, I did this and then I think this person thought this and I did all these things, right? I just kind of like lean in for a second, look at them. I'm like, what's it like to be that important? Right. 
And they kind of giggle. Right. Right. And because we we really need that. We need someone to take us out for a second and be like, oh, boy, you are spinning right now. Right. And um, and so it's interesting to to be in the therapy room. The things that you can't teach in school. Right. I think is what makes a good therapist. Can I be here with you energetically and be watching and mirroring and active listening and also be up here in this like bird's eye view with the diagnosing, with the, the like, what is happening? What is this interaction? And not come off as like this like split person. Right, 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 right. right. What, uh, what, I mean, you've been in this space for a while. I've known you for a few years now. And I know that you were, you were heavily into the fitness space for a long time. And then you started diving more into psychology and, and relationships. What, uh, what, what what happened to you? Why what is, <laughs> why are you a wounded it's, it's, healer? It's, it's not research. It's me search. Come on, let's <laughs> yeah. let's let's dig out this demon. Yes, why, because most people, it's like you you know, if you get into it, it's in vogue, and the second uh, you're on to the next thing, you know, as as soon as the genre is not hot anymore. But you've I've seen it. You've maintained in this space for a while, so there's something a little deeper that's driving you. Uh, what What is that? Yeah. How long is this podcast? We might be here a minute. We're going to dive <laughs> into childhood trauma. Um, so I was raised by a single mother addict alcoholic. Oh. And I, you know, didn't understand why it was happening. I didn't understand why, you know, why we looked at addiction as a disease. Because in my head, I was like, I think, and I could be wrong here. But I think if I had cancer and someone said, hey, don't ever touch this substance again and you won't have cancer anymore, I wouldn't fucking touch the substance. Right. So I was like, there's more at play. There's something else here that my mom keeps relapsing, that this keeps happening, that I'm watching it unfold in front of me. And, you know, as I got older, thankfully, I saw from a really tiny conservative town Drug addiction and alcohol addiction was not, and I don't think that a tiny town has anything to do with it, but I don't think that anyone in the town was a stranger to what it was like to have some sort of addiction be in their family or affect a loved one in some way, shape, or form. And so I watched a lot of the people that I was around either see how mom or dad or brother or sister, whoever, how they coped, and they were like, oh, right, we go back to those mirror neurons, this is how I'm supposed to cope. And so that's where, you know, addiction runs in families. And it's like, no, trauma runs in family and trauma responses runs in families. And their best answer, right, Gabor Mate talks about the substance, the addiction was not the problem. It was the addict's attempt to solve a problem. And that's the same. And that's generational, right? I can watch and do that. And I instead saw everything I didn't want to be. I was like, I don't. I don't want this life. There's something different. I know there's something different. And whether that was a divine act of the cosmos or just genuine curiosity, I was like, I just, there's got to be more out there. And so I pushed myself into every sport ever. And I think that, you know, from a, a coping psychological perspective, I was looking for validation. I was looking for, you know, nothing I'm, I'm doing is going to get my mom sober. And it's really easy to get stuck in, especially at a young age, the like, what about me isn't good enough for her to stay sober. I'm going to be the prom queen and the valedictorian and the sports star. And like, maybe that'll be enough. Right. And that's a whole codependency tangent that we can go down a different time. (laughs) But 
Instead, I found all of that validation in athletics. Right. I was like, if I push my body hard enough, I'll perform. I'll get the accolade. I'll win the game. I'll get the award, whatever. Right. When did you get into CrossFit? 2013. But you were a swimmer before then, right? Yeah. So you were were deep into swimming and then got into CrossFit. Yeah. So I swimming, water polo, volleyball, played volleyball through college and then graduated. And I was like, shit, what now? Yeah. 24-hour fitness is really boring if I don't have a game that I'm training for or something. I found CrossFit and I was like, ooh, I can compete in every class, right? right? I can get that validation again. I can I can woo the coach. I can beat the member. I can like there's a clock. I'm going to fucking rage and beat it. Right. And so when I got really into that and I started coaching and we talk about, you know, the body keeping the score and holding trauma, Vander Kolk's work of of where trauma is stored in the body and how it's stored in the body. And I was coaching. I was recognizing a anytime my mom had any stint of sobriety, she was working out. She was eating well. She was moving her body. And that the second that started to go away was like my little flag went up of like, ooh, relapse is on the horizon, right? And then working with athletes and working so intimately with their bodies, I was I was so much more than their coach. It was like, hey, I've never done a box jump and I just did that and you helped me get there and that's amazing, right? And so I started mixing these two worlds of like, there's got to be more. And this was obviously far before my master's program, but I was like, our bodies are this beautiful vessel that get us from place to place and hold so much more than like our our frontal cortex does, right? There's got to be a way to marry the two things. And there's 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 got to be something out there. So I ended up leaving the fitness industry, not completely, but working in substance abuse rehab and launching fitness programs in the rehab centers and it was like my own best experiment it's like what happens right because you get a different um, I don't know who here has been to a rehab center um, to just go visit but if you visit rehab centers their gyms are like a pop-up tent with like a rusty dumbbell right and they're like hey moving your body's important and that's it right and so I went in and like built out gyms and made just as much as it was, you know, clients had to go to psychoeducation and group and meet with their one-on-one counselor. They also had fitness built into their day. And so I was watching people physically, as you get sober, right, tons of things are changing internally. I'm getting healthier. I, you know, different things are going on in the brain, all this stuff's going on. And it's really, really hard when your internal world doesn't match the exterior. So now they're coming to fitness and their bodies are changing and they're moving. And I'm watching them gain confidence in the gym and take that into group and and approach the group in a totally different way. So I get called into the clinical director's office and I'm like, shit, 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 shit. Like, who wants to get called into the clinical director's office? What am I doing wrong? And he goes hey, what are you doing? I'm like, what do you mean? And he goes, well, these one-on-one sessions that you're having with clients where you're supposed to be talking about squatting and nutrition and recovery. He was like, you're getting data that their one-on-one counselors aren't getting. People are telling you about their sexual trauma. People are telling you about their abusive father or mother, whoever, right? What are you doing? And I was like, I'm working with people's bodies. Like, I'm working with people, I'm a safe place, and maybe it's because I'm not the counselor. Maybe it's because I'm not the person's like, you need to be sober. I'm the person's like, hey, 
what does it feel like to drop into your body? What does it feel like to to move in this functional range of motion? And for a lot of people, it was like, I've never felt comfortable doing that because my body, I left my body a long time ago. And just being willing to go back to what we were saying before, just to sit with someone's energy and be like, man, you didn't deserve that. That fucking sucks. And, right, that's kind of the, the beautiful and, and even though it sucks that it's your job to heal it, how can we heal it? How can we move forward and start using the body to heal through these things? And uh, he looked at me, he's like, okay, go to school. <laughs> because you're whatever it is that you're doing, it's working. And you are doing yourself a disservice by not being trauma-informed mm. and not knowing what it is that you're sitting with. Um, not only from like a do no harm level, but also from a like, you're about to start holding on to a lot of things that you're not going to know how to deal with. Oh, right. And so that was probably the most important part of my program was learning just how important my self-care was. Because if I, right, it's the whole like yeah. putting on your mask first in yeah. the airplane. Yeah, you got to be Teflon for all that trauma. Yeah. You don't want to be Velcro. Right. Yeah. And it sticks to you, man. <laughs> I'm sure. It sticks to you. Yeah, those empathetic, sensitive people are like buckets of fucking... <laughs> You're like a repository for everyone else's demons. Yeah. Hey, everyone. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm the safe place. Yeah. 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 And so, yeah, went back to school and here I am. Okay. Do you know what's happening in um, on the, the level of the body when people are working out that allows them to access trauma more easily? I believe this 100%. I mean, I am I get a case of the sads most days that I don't work out. Mm. And I've realized that about myself. I, I need to move my body more than most people to be happy. Mm-hmm. And, and it's very difficult for me to get out of a cloudy mental state until I move my body a lot. Yeah. And one thing that, that I was just thinking of when you were saying that is that when people are working out they're breathing Mm. it's kind of crazy to think about going back to the power of the breath to shift between states that's one thing that you're getting you're actually getting them to to breathe deeply likely for the only time that they're going to do that in their whole day Mm -hmm. so just to reiterate the question was what about the body yeah what is it that what is do, you, it? do you know much about what's actually changing obviously you're you're getting your blood moving and but i just don't know the science yeah behind that yeah so going back to vander kolk's the body keeps the score for anyone that hasn't read that book and you're interested in this conversation check that out it's really really interesting um the other thing that comes to mind is i did a dance therapy class right and I was so nervous because I was like, unless I'm on copious amounts of substances, I don't dance. Okay. And you want me for the next 12 weeks. I dance with kettlebells. Yeah. I'm like, you want me for the next 12 weeks to ecstatic dance in front of people that are not also like in the deep playa? What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. And, and while we're doing this dance class, we're also reading all the research behind dance. And they were finding that dance therapy is especially effective with uh, sexual abuse survivors because of where the trauma is lodged in the body. So when you watch someone move, not always, but what this particular dance therapist was seeing was that 
women, especially who had been sexually abused, had really muted hips. So they wouldn't like move their hips in a certain way. And oh, it's not funny. It's just muted hips. Muted hips. Yeah. I think that's that's kind of a, a fitness <laughs> Kyle, term, right? Kyle, you got muted hips. You got hips. muted hips. Or when you ask someone to like, you're watching someone dance and they're really closed off, right? Yeah. And they're kind of staying in their mm. own space. Just giving them the invitation of like, what would it feel like to take up, just use the room, take up as much of the space as you want. However you want to do it with your legs, with your feet, with your arms, with your body, take it up. And so just starting to give people the permission to break out of the confines that the trauma has kept them in is going to allow so much of that stuff to surface. And if anything, right, like I'm probably not going to go up to someone dancing and be like, <clears throat> so when were you sexually abused? Right. right. But it gives me knowledge as a therapist to be able to know that that might come into the room at some point, to know that, okay, I need to also create this safe of a space for someone to feel able, like they're able to be vulnerable enough to tell me about those things. If yeah. that if that even comes up. And if not, can I invite their bodies to move in a way that can start to like dislodge some of that stuff? What is it about the hips? What is it about the hips? I started taking these classes um, mm-hmm. at Santa Cruz Movement and they it's a um, it are, they're classes that are designed around the Edo Portal method. Um, so it's a lot of dance slash exercise and you're you're getting yourself off balance and you're doing these weird movements that really engage the mind and it's a mm-hmm. lot of hip and spine opening. Bro, I was doing this the other day, I almost started crying. Uh-huh. I was like, what is it? It's in my hips right now. I, they were cemented and closed off to emotion. <laughs> now you're opening I'm this. I'm a glass <laughs> case of emotion. No one makes me cry my own tears. Yeah, it was weird. It was it was really funny too because you have like this uh, this partner and the and the exercise is that they have a stick. They have this like five foot long stick and they slowly wave it over your head and you need to bend over, m- mobilizing your hips and your spine to make it under the stick. And I was mm. doing it and I was like. So there's some pollen in the air or something right now. <laughs> What's going on? <clears throat> yeah. I mean. I don't cry. I work out. <laughs> I cry and work out. And be honest. There's plenty of times when I'm in just a pile of tears and yeah. sweat. Um, I can't answer about yeah. the hips. I'm not. I'm not. I it's think more just like there's something there's about There's something about him. If I had to be completely just like spin out and go with what my brain is telling me yeah. right now. And, and this could be completely independent to me. There is, and I learned a bunch of this through CrossFit, right? There is so much power in the hips, right? And and for many of us, right, that's a very sacred area. Like our life force energy is stored there. I bring life into the world through my childbearing hips, right? Um, and then, you you know, you go over to the fitness space or jujitsu, right? I just started rolling jujitsu, probably the most humbling experience I've had ever. Um, But how much of that is like, hey, like hip bump, hip, open your hips, do these different things. And so for me personally, my experience with that would just be like, there is so much power in my hips that to then start moving them in a way and unleash that or give it a space where it's allowed to play and, and be here can be pretty fucking powerful and emotional. What do you do uh, in your, what do you do when you are feeling stressed out mm. is are there any 
quick movements that you that you go to to kind of de-stress the same way that an animal shakes off trauma? Yeah, interesting. Um, I mean, I to not sound like a broken record, so much of it is returning to the breath. And so much of it is like having that internal conversation with myself of like, you are safe. This is not that. Our, our brain doesn't know the difference between reality and thought. So if I'm spinning out and thinking that I'm so stressed out and the world is ending and all these different things are happening, yeah, like confirmation bias, yes, you're right. If I can bring conscious awareness to that and choose something else, whether that's breathing, a quick run, I love having a dog, go outside, get some sun, walk my dog for even 15 minutes, that's going to bring me back down. Um, I think that I personally... And this, again, is just my own trauma. Um, I do a, a, I work a lot with parts. So IFS, Internal Family Systems, is a type of therapy that works with different parts that we have. And it's based out of um, everyone said it. I've, I've said it too. Like, a part of me wants to do this, but another part of me wants to do that, right? So the person who founded IFS got very, very interested in that and was like, well, why do people keep talking about parts? Right. You know? So I have a part that especially when I'm stressed and anxious, because so much of that was my coping mechanism as a kid, was like, I need to move my body. I need to run. I need to flee. I need to go. I need to do all these different things. And now my practice is turning into that part um, and not telling it that it's not welcome or that I need to run away from it or move through it. And instead, just like inviting it in and having that conversation of like, hey, what's going on? Why are you here? I've never met a part that doesn't have a good intention or want to keep us safe. Um, and right, like what you repress is what you're going to manifest. It's going to come into your reality. Right. So if I can get curious about it instead and be like, ooh, why are you here? You know, Elizabeth Gilbert, she mm -hmm. wrote uh, Eat, Pray, Love. She has a really interesting line about how she will invite different selves to the table mm -hmm. and she'll say, okay, now I'm going to ask anger to come to the table and anger. I'm going to give you your time to speak and she'll let anger speak. And, and in a journal is a really good way to do this where you just let the, the anger self fucking talk. Okay, cool. Thank you for your perspective. And now I'm going to let love speak and you let love come to the table and get everything out mm -hmm. and recognizing that you have these different selves um, has really uh, profound implications regarding compassion mm -hmm. because when you then um, are wronged by someone, you recognize that it's not their whole self that wronged you. It is a part of themselves and it can allow for forgiveness. A ton of trauma and problems in the world from personal family relationships to wars are the result of our inability to forgive one another. And when you adopt this new model of us having different selves, it allows for um, that kind of healing to happen more quickly. One of my f favorite podcasts I've listened to in maybe the last year was um, with Jim Fadiman and Sam Harris. Sam mm -hmm. Harris had him on. It's called The Psychedelic and the Self. And um, 
I'm actually having Fadiman on here uh, this week. Wow. And, and we're talking about his new book, um, Our Symphony of Selves. Uh, and he has this really great line where he opens the book and where he says, um, have you ever argued with yourself? And everyone says, yeah. And he says, who is doing the arguing? Mm-hmm. Like, Whoa. I, well, it's one part of myself arguing with the other part of myself. Holy shit. I'm not this one unified person. I'm this confluence of influences. Yes. And that, uh, it's been a real head spinner for me. That's one of my, when I have clients that are spinning out on, you know, what should I do? This or that. One of the like oldest plays in the book is we're going to create a pros and cons list, Mm. right? And just at looking at that list, you can see, well, objectively, which list is shorter and which one's longer. Right. That might give me some indication, these different things. But that I, I just watched it for so long in the in the substance abuse world. Pros and cons, pros and cons, pros and cons. And I was like, there's it, first off, it's very, very, very hard for any of us to be that objective. Mm. We're, we have blind spots. We have confirmation bias. Right. We know what we want to say. We just want someone else to confirm that, like, what we want to do is right. Yeah. And so one of my favorite things to do is take the self out of it and say, OK, I want you to write two letters. The first letter, I want you to write from someone who is not in your corner. They're going to call you every name in the book. They're going to tell you why this idea is stupid. They're going to tear you down, right? Mm-hmm. The self-critic voice, if you if you will. Write that letter, right? And now I want you to write a letter from that person who wants to see you win. Mm. That person who is your biggest supporter, that loves everything about you. What is What's that letter look like? And for most of us, the latter letter, say that five times fast. The latter letter is a lot <laughs> more difficult to write. Right. Yeah. A lot more difficult. Yeah. Because we don't think we deserve success. Mm-hmm. We don't think we deserve to be healthy and happy. Why do you think fitness is so big? Right. Why do you think when you come in, when was the last time that you had someone's attention for an hour and all they wanted to do was for you to be better and feel better? Right. I think, you know, I think fitness coaches, we are preventative medicine. Hmm. And we are the, like, we are the people who are in your corner. We are the people who, you know, I have, when I teach a CrossFit class, I have an hour of people's time. So that gives you 23 more hours a day. Maybe you sleep another eight of those. You work another nine of those. An hour of someone's time is fucking huge. And in that hour, I have the ability to be the best hour of that person's day. And I have their undivided attention. So whether it's at the end of the class and I ask them, hey, before you guys unload your barbells, before you do this, we're going to take breaths, right? We're going to nasal breathe. Or we stretch. Or I bring in some nutrition article, right? Like I have, honestly, I think it's like a a duty, but I have these people's attention for an hour. And they know that I love and support them and they trust me. Yeah, I think similarly about this podcast, like I have the opportunity to be the worst hour of someone's day when they listen to me talk. And that <laughs> really motivates me to keep doing it. I want to know your your uh, your yeah. letter, your self-critic letter, and ever, what that sounds like. It's written in blood. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, Fadiman, um, also he talks about how the one of the, uh, one really interesting thing that AA does is when you go to AA, um, they say, hi, I'm Kyle and I'm an alcoholic. And what that does is it brings the alcoholic self to the table, mm. right? Because the non-alcoholic self doesn't want to drink. They're perfectly fine being sober. But then as soon as the alcoholic self comes to the table, it's a whole different story. Mm. So to speak from that self um, is, I, I, I had never really noticed that detail, but that is their motto. It right? is their motto. And I, it's when you look at the research behind 12-step modalities, um, and this is not to shake it. It has helped a lot of people. Um, but they find that it's only most effective in the very acute stages, like the mm. very beginnings, because you're alone, you might feel like a dirtbag, you're sitting in your shame, and all of a sudden I get to go somewhere and I'm in community. It's tribal again. Sure. I'm accepted. Me and my shadow and my dirty shit is welcome here, and it looks like everyone else's. Yeah. Well, you know you know about the history of... of- AA and psychedelics, mm-hmm. right? The and fa- how much like Carl f- Jung was involved. Well, the, with- the founder was like, "Wow, these these psychedelic mushrooms can really help with addiction." And then uh, the board early on was like, "We are so uninterested in you talking about bringing other drugs to the table." Mm-hmm. And that but- was, you know, he was doing. You go back to Bill W. Right? That's his, yeah, that's yeah, his yeah. Name. Bill, uh, yeah, yeah. Wilson, Wilson. So. When when he was kind of, um, I might butcher this, so, so bear with me, but when he was developing this curriculum, if you will, the 12 steps, um, this like 13th step other than relapse, right? Because if you relapse and you start back over and, and even if you do get to the 12th and then you're still sober and you go back to the first and you have, it's a ritual, right? I have different parts in my life. Have you ever read a book when you were 15 and then you read it again at 20 and it just hits so much different? Same with these steps, right? The idea of where you are in life and the way you work them is going to be different every single time you get to them, whether or not you've done the first step one time or 16 times. Um, But there's this like 13th step, if you will, that kind of got cut out. And Bill W. was talking a bunch with Carl Jung. And they were talking about the collective unconscious. And they were talking about, you know... um, dreams and synchronicities and all of these things and i recently started reading uh stealing fire have you read that and jamie wheel yeah Mm. something wheel i think so um anywho it's all about that too right it's all about can we be in lockstep with one another with no verbal communication energetically talking to each other knowing that you know, what I do has profound effect on you and vice versa. And I am also like the creator of my reality. So I can interpret whatever you're saying or doing through my through my lens, through my paradigm and internalize it as you hurting me or I can internalize it as seeing your wounding and what's going on or that at the end of the day, like what you do doesn't actually affect me. It's my own trauma, my own understandings of how the life works and how life goes on that I interpret what you're doing and say that, oh, you hurt me. Hmm. It's like, no, my experience of what you're doing made me categorize this as pain. Um, And so working on that deep, deep energetic level was 
again, a lot of people who have done psychedelics can can say they've been in that place, um, that nonverbal kind of energetic space. Um, and again, like you were saying, that got totally thrown out the window. It's like, mm, no, you're an addict. You're an alcoholic. Don't don't do those things. And if abstinence is the name of your game, cool. Stick with it. If that's what works for you, awesome. Yeah. Um, well, it's whether you're talking about psychedelics or you're talking about fitness, um, getting people to start working out, a big part of that is narrative psychology. So over time, when whether it's in a macro dose of ayahuasca or it's over a few-year period of doing CrossFit or runs from runs, you're changing the way that someone sees the story of their life. Um, that was uh, what James Clear talks about with his book, Atomic Habits. He's like, Atomic Habits are, are been making these little tiny changes in your life aren't ultimately about the habit itself it's about you over time starting to think that you are the kind of person that does this thing and then your actions are just going to follow that narrative identity change is the most powerful form of change and that's why storytelling is so fucking powerful right if i can allow if i can tell a story about you that allows you to see your life um from a story about of, of resilience rather than victimhood, that's going to change the way that you think, think about yourself, the way that you eat, exercise, because you're just falling in line. Um, and that, and I think that one of the biggest you know mistakes that we've made, right, is that like you were talking about that, like the pop up tent and mm. the, the single rusty dumbbell. dumbbell is like, cool, just move your body. That doesn't allow people these actionable steps to start that narrative shift. And that's why just going to, like starting working out and just doing it every single day, you're gonna do it for 10 minutes, is so much more powerful than trying to do once a week for two hours. Because mm -hmm. just by doing the 10 minutes every single day, even if you're not seeing the changes in your body right away, you're starting to shift the narrative to becoming this kind of person that works out every day. And then you can just ratchet that dial up again and again until you're super fit, slinging, oh, totally. ke slinging kettlebells across the room like Lindsay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I even start smaller than that. I tell my client, like, hey, just put your running shoes on. Right. Just put the yeah, shoes yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You've read Atomic Habits. And you're more Great likely book. to maybe go outside right maybe go for a walk if the opportunity presents itself you're ready right um yeah bringing bringing conscious awareness to our stories is really interesting so we can get so stuck in them and i had someone explain it to me once as um have you ever been on a chairlift and you look to the left and there's like this groomed trail that tons of people have gone over and you see the the many 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 tracks and then you look off and you see the powder and you see that one beautiful, fresh track, right? That's the brain. And that's our thoughts. We have, what, 60,000 thoughts a day. And they found that 90% of those thoughts are repeat. 90% of those <sighs> okay. thoughts are the groom trail, right? Uh, and they are deep. And we know the route and we can get very, very stuck in them. A new thought is that one track of powder, Right. That one track that's like very surface level. It looked fun and it was new and it was exciting and it was hot and sexy when we were there and then it was over. 
So if I want to start creating that story, that reality, that narrative, I've got to send someone down that track a lot more. I've got to consciously bring myself from the groom trail that I'm so used to going down that is deep with tracks and actively like catch myself when I'm there and bring myself back over to the powder Mm. and start creating that neural pathway and making it deeper, making it stronger. Mm. And how do you recommend that, that people do that? I love journaling. I know that we kind of touched on that at the beginning. Um, Journaling allows us, A, it's a space that whether you are not comfortable in therapy, you can't afford therapy, whatever's going on, um, it gives you a non-judgmental space. Like those pages aren't going to say shit to you, except they're going to tell you a lot when you go back and look at them, right? I'm going to go back and look at them and I can start finding like, you know, I start my journal entry. I have a little space at the very top. It's like, what's my mood? Huh. And I so I write down my mood and then I kind of just like, flow of consciousness right it might even start with like i'm committed to writing three pages and more often than not it starts with i really don't know what i'm gonna say today and then boom there's three pages right and then when i go back and i look at something and i'm like dang like my mood was tired uninspired bored all of these different things for a week two weeks and i go back and i read what was i writing about What was coming up? What were the stories I was telling myself? What did I do the night before? Did I drink? Because if I drank the night before, fuck, I'm uninspired in the morning, right? And that's when I can start catching those narratives or catching those those lifestyle parts of me that are like, oh, that's not, it's not what I wanted. And in fact, when I woke up and I, you know, did my morning breath work and I stretched and then I journaled, fuck, I felt great. Hmm. So, you know, going back to Atomic Habits, if I know that I want to breathe and stretch every morning, that's, that becomes a non-negotiable. That means I need to get up an hour earlier. If I need to get up an hour earlier, that means I'm going to go to bed a little bit earlier. If I want a good night's sleep, maybe I stop looking at my phone an hour before I go to bed. If I stop looking at my phone an hour before I go to bed, I'm not doom scrolling and going through this super negative thought loop, right? And all of these things start stacking on top of each other just because I wanted to breathe and stretch in the morning. Mm. And I only know that because I started journaling and I noticed what habits were happening when I would wake up groggy, uninspired, tired. (laughs) You, you, you really go to the books, Lindsay. I appreciate it. I love how, um, how knowledgeable you are about all of these different, different subjects. Uh, I just, I usually just journal like, you're gonna die one day. <laughs> That's true. Which is, I've, I, I, I say that sort of in jest, but at the same time, I gotta watch how much this optimization is really uh, masking a deep fear of death mm. that our whole society suffers from. I think that most, most of what we see people create. Uh, through their egos is this terror that we're all going to perish one day and you're going to have to say goodbye to everyone that you know. Um, So I try to, I want to have a, that perspective as I go along with bettering myself Mm -hmm. because it's easy to, in the optimization space, it's easy to slip into chasing perfection which just behind is this this shuddery terror that 
your body will one day wilt and it, it starts to happen faster than you think. Yeah, dude. Right? Turn and 30, you, turn you 30, know. Turn 30, you feel it. Like, my knee hurts. What the fuck? That yeah. wrinkle didn't used to be yeah. there. Yeah. Why is this hair growing out of my arm so quickly? Yeah, That's exactly. Weird, right? So like how, you know, to... I, I think that that's the power of like beautiful literature and poetry and comedy is like, and it's it's kind of intangible and it's more difficult to describe. But I've I think I've always been more drawn to that because there's a um a an honesty mm. that I think can allow people to uh, give up the war that so often is um, clutching them mm. in their space, in their pursuit of excellence. And I think it's a very American thing. Mm-hmm. I don't think that I'm going to biohack better than you, you. Know, fucking biohack your way to happiness. And it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, there's a, there's a dance that I'm, I'm always trying to stay aware of because you can slip too far into, you can slip into nihilism if you contemplate death too much. Um, and you can not take those little steps of putting your running shoes out in the morning and taking the actions that get you into a better mood that allow you to to live a, a happy life and look back on it and think, wow, that was cool. Um, I, I recently had a hospice nurse on this podcast. It was mm. one of the best ones I've ever done. Um, and she says that, you know, there is a there is a real difference in the way that people die. And often they die the way that they lived. Mm. So training yourself to... Mine's going to go up in a fiery to be, death. Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. She's been fucking doing bench presses on her deathbed. Let's fucking do this. Let's fucking go. Yeah. This is my PR. <laughs> and... There she goes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can be in your casket with like a little like a dumbbells next to you. <sighs> front rack. Yeah, front. Yeah, front rack. Front rack in the casket. <laughs> Put a timer right next to you. <laughs> yeah. As the second you die, like beep. Okay. Done. <laughs> Finished. Put it on the scoreboard. Put it on the whiteboard. Yeah. Did yeah. I win death? Did I beat it? Did I did I beat that? Yeah, bitch ass death. Yeah, <laughs> get out of here, death. Um, but you were saying there's a difference in the way. I that think people that there's die. a difference in the way that people die, and I think that it's there's. Um, I I don't have the language to really talk about it. I think that off it's that the immensity of the thought that we're all going to perish is somewhat ineffable, um, and that's that's okay. Um, and there's just to kind of recapitulate, there's a, a balance between taking action every day and, and, and taking these small habits seriously to be able to capitalize on your life. And there's a profundity to always considering death, um, because then it, when those, I think that one benefit of that, or one reason it's a worthy project is that it doesn't take you by surprise. Mm. And, and we all die before we're buried. 
you you have relationship death you have physical death you have career death and to be able to sit in that space and be fully present with it and not try and distract yourself with optimization is uh courageous mm-hmm. um we don't like it. We don't like it. We don't like it. But you know, it's but it, but it's freeing. It's freeing because you're giving up that struggle. The reins of control. Yeah, you're giving up control. So two things bubble up for me in that. One is that there is a shadowy side of this like woke human optimization space. There we've all seen it. And to be completely honest, I don't fucking have time. In my day. I didn't know that there was a woke human optimization space. I always saw them in two categories, but like woke and optimized. I don't want to hang out with them. Yeah, yikes. There's there's just, there is a shadowy side of it because there's this this ego in it, right? Like, oh, you, you didn't walk outside barefoot and soak up the positive ions with your green juice and then come inside and move your body in this specific way with your CBD, and right? Like, I don't have time. So... What I like the most and what you're kind of talking about is like this idea of like radical acceptance and radical responsibility. I, some of the human optimization works for you, doesn't work for me, different strokes, different folks, go for it. Um, I'm going to be my own best experiment and find out what works best. Mm. For me, if that's breathing, stretching, journaling, and that sets me up, cool. If yours is walking outside and doing a loving kindness meditation and then working out super hard. Cool. Right. Like find what works for you. Right. Um, and what doesn't let it go because yeah. your because your practice looks different than mine does not make either one of us right. better than the no, other person. No, I, I like that. I think that's a good, that's a good perspective. What I was f- flailing about in my, uh, <laughs> little death monologue death monologue here <laughs> hey welcome to the kyle Tierman show everyone yeah, he has a skull in his hand it's like, like i Hamlet. said i want to be the worst hour <laughs> of your day well what what you brought up that i saw i can't remember where i saw the quote it was on one of the therapist pages i follow but it was about long-term relationship right and it was like to be with a person long term you need to celebrate a hundred births and grieve a hundred deaths of that person their personality their likes their dislikes because we've all heard and i i go with this with my clients for so much like oh he's not the man i fell in love with it's like well fuck you fell in love at 18 he's now 45 i would hope not you want to be in love with an 18 year old let's talk about some other trauma and wounding you've got going most, on most 45 year old women do <laughs> <laughs> we all do yeah, yeah let's be honest so, uh, so yeah, it's like, you know, I reserve the right at any point in my life to change my mind, whether that is because of new information, a new life experience, a book I read, whatever it is, I can change my mind. And my partner, my friends, my family, that can be really uncomfortable. Change is very uncomfortable for the people around you, right? In um, Joe Dispenza's You Are the placebo he talks about the river of change and there's these two banks and one is like the person you have been this box that I have put you in and labeled Kyle that I know how you act and talk and receive my information that's Kyle 
And on the other side is this person that maybe you read that book or that article or tried this new thing, and that's the person you want to be. To get from bank to bank, I've got to be in this river, right? And it is tumultuous, and it there's waves and currents, and it's going to question you. It's that whole, like, Ryan Holiday, the obstacle is the way kind of thing, right? And it's going to, like, that previous bank is going to look really sexy, where all the people know exactly how I act and what I do and what I say. And I don't, I don't disturb anyone else's life by being that version of Kyle. I've got to get across this river to be the version I want to be. Hmm. And I think that that's so similar, whether it's long-term relationship or when you, you know, start talking about death is like, I don't know when it's going to come. And Hmm. depending on your beliefs, like maybe it's written in the cosmos, your time to go is your time to go. And that can give you some, you know, release of this control or or whatever it is but if I can spend as much time as possible being willing to get across that river and be the person that I feel the most authentic the most genuine the realist showing up as then when it's my time to go like I can I can say hey like damn it the biohacking didn't work like it's time (laughs) that's that's what uh I'm going to put on my gravestone. <laughs> Damn the biohacking didn't the work. Biohacking didn't work. <laughs> Damn you, Kurzweil. <laughs> ben Greenfield, motherfucker. <laughs> he told me to just consume all these fish oils. I was going to live forever. Yeah. Uh, no, you know, I, I, I think that you, uh, you touched on what I was kind of pointing to um, around the take, like, Take what you like, leave the rest, and the, the 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 critique that I have of whether it be you know optimization or wokeness. And I, again, I love all these people. I hope everyone knows. I'm kind of just I mean, we I'm both just do. poking fun. I'm just joking. It's a love language. If it's you're a, not making fun of language, me, we are exactly. not friends. Exactly. <laughs> God, I love all of you people. You're amazing good enough you're smart enough and gosh darn it people like you i'm a little jealous if i'm being honest yeah a little jealous that's where this humor comes from um (laughs) i'm suspicious of uh prescription as and and i'm suspicious of how much of uh culture now prescribes things to people without the anecdote that you just gave, which is, hey, if it works for you, great. If it doesn't, don't worry about it. Um, and I think that's a really important caveat um, to always be delivering with any kind of prescript- prescriptive information because life is complicated and it's not a one-size-fits-all. So the like the idea that you know, let's take it political, right? The idea that because you know um, what I, th- about my beliefs about, let's say, climate change, then you're going to automatically know my belief about gun control mm. is pretty weird, right? And similarly in the fitness space, like if you know my thoughts about exercise that means that you're going to know my thoughts about like this nutrition. this one nutrition yeah piece which is I, I think that it removes our dynamism and i i am a big proponent of 
taking the best and leaving the rest and and being a kind of person being the kind of person who can be surprising and mm. is more difficult to categorize yeah you know well what's... i i'm wearing a i'm wearing a <laughs> sounds gay i'm in tank top that's purple with a rainbow and next month i'm going to go kill a deer I want you to kill the deer in that tank top. <laughs> yeah. Please. Yeah, you know, keeping I Keeping people guessing. Keep them on their toes. And it's it's so funny that you bring that up because I was talking to someone the other day. We all we can all fall into people pleasing, right? Especially if I have made those preconceived notions of you. If I'm like, ooh, okay, this is what I think Kyle's stance is on gun control. So I'm going to strike up this conversation because that we'll be able to talk about this and that'll reflect well on me. Right. So tell me, try to tell me if that's your MO, if that's your motivation behind this, try to tell me that that people pleasing was for that person's best interest. Because so many people, right, when I start sitting down and talking, especially in relationships, and you fall into caretaker, or you fall into this, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to please my partner, I'm going to please my friend, I'm going to please my boss. That has nothing to do with the other person. You are not making that person's life easier. You are trying to control the way that person perceives you. So it's a self-preservation tool because if I can cater to what I think you want to see and I can be the person that you need me to be, that's going to benefit me in the long run because now I'm manipulating the way that you view me and now you're going to love me, you're going to keep me employed, you're going to keep me around, and that is the heart of people-pleasing. I think. Mm. I could be wrong. But that's that's where I kind of sit with it. And if you reframe it like that, it's like, ooh, feels kind of yucky. Yeah. Do I want to yeah. manipulate people in that way right, right, and right. say that it's because I, you know, I really wanted to stop by Trader Joe's and get you the groceries that you needed? Yeah. yeah. Not because that makes me look like a helpful good friend. Yeah, man. I I uh, have been churning over this thought of uh, around intellectual freedom quite a bit recently um, because when intellectual freedom for me is one of my most important core values i want to like i want to live a life where my ideas are free and i can traverse that landscape as widely and deeply as possible and that is why i love podcasting so much it's because it constantly moves me out of my comfort zone it constantly forces me to consider other perspectives. And I think that a lot of people who listen to podcasts are those kinds of intellectually curious people as well. They, they, mm -hmm. It feels good to be surprised. And um, I, I think that um, there's a lot of talk about, about freedom, right? Freedom, freedom of speech, right? Let it ring, baby. But, but do you truly feel freedom? Right. Because because so often we don't say things because we're terrified of what our friends are going to think. We're terrified of what our followers on social media are going to think. So it's a kind of censor self-censorship that is based on fear. It's based on, as you say, wanting to please other people. Right. Preservation. Preservation. Right. And. As you said earlier, we don't we don't often know the difference, but our mind doesn't know the difference between real threat and perceived threat. So if you post something on social media and everyone tells you that you're a dipshit, it felt like your tribe just called you a dipshit. Right. Right? And Absolutely. and I think it's so it's so 
it's such a powerful disposition to take on to actually try and be at home in that discomfort in service of I hate to use the word but authenticity mm-hmm. being yourself and trying to strengthen that muscle throughout life and one thing that's also become really clear to me just in the kind of more recently is how much um intellectual freedom is tied to financial freedom because if you have a job that you are terrified to lose and that's how you're getting your health insurance and you've got a couple kids you are going to censor yourself and try and placate everyone in the room as a tactic for self-preservation and we talked about this a little bit before we went on the Mm -hmm. podcast i think that like trying to navigate a life where you where you have as much as possible to um, fall back on if you say something that is unpopular would provide a space for true creativity and ideation to evolve in this culture in a way that it's not currently. Yeah, because if if we're in a culture where we're we're that's primarily fear-based, afraid of losing our jobs, afraid of losing our health insurance, and it's and it's warranted fear. Um, it creates a ceiling on intellectual curiosity that is regressive. And I I don't know the solution to this. I know that that trying to get your your money in order is a is a one way to. Um, be able to create a a kind of um, foundation for being able to maintain intellectual curiosity throughout life. But I think that just being like recognizing it too as as a, a worthy project to pursue and and learning to be at home, you know, walking those hot coals of originality again and again. Um, feels spiritually important to me. Absolutely. And I, you know, I also don't have the answer to this, which is why I love sitting down with you because I feel like we just get to riff of what's going on between our ears. But something that you brought up, right, the fire chief that is grounded and breathing and in this space, like those are the kinds of leaders that we need for this space to even exist. I think we're, you know, we were talking about mud earlier and what you guys are doing over there and, and the the culture and community that Shane has created there for so long was not room at the top for people to not be right, to not be driven by ego, right? That like, and maybe it's out of that same thing, right? When, when the alarms are going off and everyone's running around with their chicken with their head cut off, there's something really sexy about the guy at the top being like, I have the answer. Here's what we're going to do. But that also has its shadow side, right? Because it's like, well, what if your answer isn't the most effective? Do you have the ego strength or maybe lack thereof to hear someone say, what about this? Mm. Because I, I, I keep bringing it back to relationships, but I've been doing a lot of relationship work lately with clients. And I like to look at it as so many of us base all of our self-worth on whether or not someone agrees with our opinion. And at the end of the day, it's ours. You can't tell me it's wrong. 
might be different from yours, but what's my experience is my experience. What's yours is yours. So when people get broke up, broken up with or get ghosted, right, the kids are doing these days, it's heartbreaking because all of a sudden there is something about me that was not worthy about being with or me that was not worthy about being listened to if we want to use, um, you know, the work example. But when you think about it and, and strip away the the self that is attached to it, hey, I put this idea out, but this idea does not have to be me. You're not rejecting me or rejecting the opportunity of taking this idea. Because if you and I were to go to talk, you know, we're going to go to dinner tonight and I wanted Mexican food and you wanted Chinese food. I wouldn't put my self-worth in the fact that you didn't want Mexican food tonight, right? So if I can look at relationships like that and be like, I presented an opportunity for someone to be with me and they wanted the opportunity of being with someone else or being alone or being whatever, that's them declining an opportunity, not decline. That doesn't do anything about my self-worth. Hmm. Not that I wasn't enough. It wasn't that I wasn't pretty enough, tall enough, skinny enough, whatever enough. It's that this person didn't want that opportunity. Mm. And yeah, I, me, yeah I, I just, I feel differently because if you say that you want anything else besides the Super El Pastor burrito at Tacos Marinas in Santa Cruz, California, I can't talk we can't to do you this. anymore. I can't, Chinese food? Gross. Ew. Yeah. My self-worth Ew. just went out the window. Yeah. My self-worth just went out Starfleet. <laughs> Start flight. Start flight. Start flight. 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 Do you Sorry. know what Ray Kurzweil thinks about Chinese food? What? I don't know, but it's probably not good. <laughs> better like my, my super al pastor burrito. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, detaching our identities from our opinions um, is a very powerful uh, tool. And being able to uh, regulate ourselves, as, as you said, people who can be cool under pressure a lot you know it allows uh for listening to be possible right because it's often when if we have an emotional response to someone about from an opinion that they have we're not actually listening to what they're saying and we're not going at it we're not approaching it from a place of curiosity um allowing them to maybe think through something in real time put their foot in their mouth as they're trying to Think through complicated ideas, and if and if there is no room for that, and it's purely reactionary, um, society will regress. Um, and and I do think that a lot of this stuff, you know, from is it is it's all connected, man. It's all connected. And uh, if you do a workout, and then you maybe sit through a, like I would be interested to see, like the experiment of someone um, listening to a podcast that they vehemently disagree with um, and do it once without exercise and two cups of coffee <laughs> and then do it again after a good workout hmm. and some mud water. This podcast Shameless is brought to plug. you by mud water. With one-seventh the caffeine as coffee, it gives you energy and focus without the jitters and crash. Mud water. Drink like a champion. No, it doesn't work. That didn't work. No. Nice try, um, nice Thanks. Try. I'm working on it. Um, no, I agree. <laughs> I think that so many of us, when we think about listening, 
is how often are you actually listening to the words that are coming out of someone's mouth instead of crafting your response to what they're already saying? Yeah, yeah. Like that, I cannot tell you how many meetings I have sat at when I know that that's what's happening. Right. And I'm like, "Mm." and that doesn't feel good, right? That doesn't feel good to be like, man, I just made my case and I watched your eyes glaze over and you were already thinking about what holes you wanted to poke in it. And so to go back to your question about how do we get to this intellectual freedom, it's like we, we've we got to change the paradigm that the person at the top has to be right. Hmm. And we've got to be in a place where it's like, you know, the sum of the parts are greater than the whole. Is that the quote? The parts? I don't know. Basically, your parts got to be working. <laughs> and communicating with each other instead of just being this one entity yeah (laughs) yeah. so if you take nothing out of this know that your parts gotta work your parts gotta work yeah it's a (laughs) fortune cookie right there yeah uh i i couldn't agree more there was a I, i saw a funny meme once which was like a person talking and the other person saying uh that sounded like the thing i was about to say or wait what what was it no it's not it's 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 your point. It's that when someone else is talking, you are thinking about what you're about to say next rather than listening. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I got to catch myself doing that all the time with this podcast because your mind is bifurcated between being present and thinking about where the conversation is going. And it's a really great practice to to just try and listen and be exactly in the room. Um, and something that anyone can practice Start asking those questions. And normalize, normalize, you know, if you have an experience that feels like an experience I've had, maybe I can just listen to yours. Hmm. I don't need to tell you about the time that something similar happened to me. Right. That is one that I catch myself in a lot. Hmm. Um, Because, I mean, it's it's easy to converse, right? Oh, man, I had something. And we want to feel tribal. We want to feel that connection. I had something like that happen, too, which is great. But if you want to start, like, practicing these skills, I mean shit having a podcast is perfect right because you're you are active listening the whole time but maybe take a friend a coffee and just let that person explain their experience you don't have to one up or share the experience but just normalize listening to someone else's without bringing yours in it's one hell of a practice yeah that's good that is good so what are you most um where are you most excited to take your learning next oh man um, Again, I got I got to compliment you. It's really cool to see your evolution over the last few years, and and see you take all of these different, um, like really be led by your curiosity mm. um, into all of these various disciplines that are seemingly disconnected, but allow for a, a really comprehensive and helpful worldview it's been fun during this conversation to kind of to be like ha ah, left turn and you're like ha ah, i got the sign of paper on that <laughs> god damn it god damn it <laughs> she fucking knows about ifs too yeah um well first and, and foremost thank you and then oh, i'm gonna get her with psychedelics god damn it you knew the name <laughs> of the founder of fucking of of aa i didn't i was trying to tiptoe around that one god <laughs> um Ha, let's talk about death. Yeah, yeah. Damn, let's get her there. Good perspective there. Fuck. Um, you know, first for us, thank you. Because, you know, I've been, I think this is the third time on the show. And I remember the first time you asked me, 
imposter syndrome just like poof, like blew up in my face. And I was like, what the fuck? Like, what am I going to talk about? Who cares what I have to say? And and each time I think it's gotten a little bit easier. And I think each time it's gotten easier is because I've gone that much further into school or that much further into reading and these different things. And and so to answer your question, I guess the next place I want to go is like, I just want to make this information attainable for other people. Um, I'm about to get woo-woo on you. So here we go. I had my natal chart read. Have you ever had that done from uh, an astrologer? The, like your navel, which is like down here. Right? So they, <laughs> yeah. Like, they're like yeah. Re- read below your belly button yeah. area. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, like Very and, somatic. Try and map it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So your natal chart is basically a a snapshot of the sky the moment that you were born. Hmm. And if you want to get, you know, there's, I was actually, someone told me after I had mine read and I shared some things about it online, someone was telling me that in some cultures, that's actually um, one of the biggest things that they look at for like arranged marriages is the natal chart, which I thought was interesting. But, um, <laughs> Lindsay, no, no, I know, I know, Lindsay, I know, I know, Lindsay, I need so to reel it, in. reel it in. I need in. to reel it in. Reel it in. No, no. So, so I'm not saying that I'm arranging a marriage on a natal chart. I'm just saying I've, I did learn that that's something that happens. But, um, one of the things that came up, which was probably the most profound of what she told me, was, um, and maybe, you know, this could be my own confirmation bias. And I was like, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to hear her say. And that fits me. But who knows? Either way, I got the message, which feels cool. And it was that I'm grounded here on this plane and can communicate on this planet, in this realm, with these people, in these meat suits, right, that we all walk around in. And my head is kind of always up in the stars in the sense that I'm curious that I, you know, I'll hear these weird woo-woo things or biohacking things and I want to bring it home first and experiment with it and try it and be able to really talk about it with any sort of credibility because I can read the books, but if I don't know what it feels like to give up caffeine, if I don't know what it feels like to do these things, where do I get off ever telling someone else to do it? No, I read the article headline and ah, post about it. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. That's super effective. Yeah. 15 second Instagram clip. <laughs> Did where- you ever see the Facebook or it was like a Facebook uh, article that was going around that said um, 73% of people will share articles without actually reading them? Was and, it and you would no click article? the article and it had like two paragraphs and then it was gibberish. <laughs> Not right. Yeah. People would totally do that. Um, And so I think that to answer your question, what I want to do is like, I want to be that bridge, the bridge that we were talking about before, where can I take where woo woo meets science and internalize it to a degree that I can then talk to other people in a way that makes sense, Mm -hmm. in a way that feels actionable, in a way that people can start taking that radical responsibility for their lives and live it in a way that feels good to them. Hell of a mission statement. That's a big mission statement. Yeah. Well, so are you are you taking clients right now? What do you like? Do you, what What do you offer? What's the yeah uh, the call to action? What's here? the CTA here? So I do have a, a therapy practice. Um, I take clients in the state of California because that is where I am allowed to work with clients. Um, so we can maybe link some things in the show notes. I work for Shine a Light Counseling Center. Um, You can put in an inquiry through there, ask to work with Lindsay, and we can get this party started. Um, I also have my podcast, Get Psyched, 
And it was actually very much inspired by your show. I think I've been telling you for years that I've been debating doing it. And so I'm about 25 episodes in. Um, and it's just exactly what I wanted. I want to, it's conversations that I want to have that were making such profound impacts in my life that if one person listened to it and decided to try something new or something worked for them or it piqued their curiosity and they want to go check out more about whatever it was that we were talking about, then it's done its job. Well, I'm, uh, I'm excited to become a a patient at your clinic in (laughs) 10 years when you have, uh, taken the entire world by storm and you can, uh, Give me some MDMA and read my natal chart. There we go. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kyle. You're the best. 